0: Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. A departure, the usual two topics, but split among three guests. Anne Newman will tell us about the horrible war in Ethiopia, which the outside world has been paying little attention to. And then Andres Arauz and Brian Muir will talk about a South American common currency scheme launched by Brazil's President Lula, which the outside world has paid some attention to, but badly. First, Ethiopia. Anne Newman is a journalist who writes mostly about end-of-life issues in the U.S., In something of a departure, she has a piece in the February issue of Harper's Magazine about the miserably bloody war in Ethiopia, which has been going on for the last couple of years, largely out of view of the outside world. It's the latest chapter in decades of bloody, factual, and ethnic conflict in that country. In this latest round, which began in November 2020 and may have ended, or at least paused late last year, at least half a million civilians have died and five million have been displaced. I say may have ended because, as we'll hear from Anne, fighting continues, and there are many loose ends. Some background. Emperor Haile Selassie was overthrown in 1974. From then through 1987, the country was ruled by the Derg, a brutally authoritarian group. They were overthrown after a 15-year war by the Tigray People's Liberation Front, TPLF, which ruled through 2018 when it was overthrown. The country is now led by Abiy Ahmed, who assembled a coalition of the country's two largest ethnic groups, the Oromo and Amara, the Amara account for about a quarter of Ethiopia's population and dominated the country's politics for centuries, a period that ended along with Haile Selassie. The TPLF was chased back into Tigray, the northernmost state in the country, and Abiy's government, in cooperation with the Eritrean army, launched a full-scale war in them in November 2020. In 2019, Abiy won the Nobel Peace Prize for his work ending the long conflict between Ethiopia and Eritrea, which looks odd in retrospect, especially since the Nobel Committee praised his work promoting peace and reconciliation processes in and around the Horn of Africa. Aside from Harper's, Anne Newman has written for The Baffler, The New York Times, The Virginia Quarterly Review, and many other publications. She was on this show in 2016 to discuss her book, The Good Death. Anne Newman. Before we get into the details, uh, tell us how you reported this story. What went into
1: it? I had pitched the story to Harper's because I'm working on a book project that begins and ends in Ethiopia. My father was on a classified base in what is now Eritrea in the 1960s. So my family has kind of this connection to the country. When I saw the war, or at least the rattlings of the war in the fall of 2020, I was talking to a friend about this and he said, well, you should report this story. You should pitch this story it seemed daunting. And so um, I pitched everybody and um, and Harper's was quite interested, but then I broke my ankle in a motorcycle accident and I had to wait until I recovered. And I was hoping that the war would not continue, but sadly it did. And by the time I was walking again, um, a brief um, ceasefire had taken place. And so I took the moment and flew to Addis Ababa. And I went in under a tourist visa, you know, I didn't want to be super obvious. Uh, I didn't know what would happen. And I was deathly afraid of losing this story. So I went into Cairo first, and you'll see in the latter half of the piece, um, where I'm talking to Ethiopian and Eritrean refugees who had found themselves in this little neighborhood of of Cairo in the west of the city. And I kind of pre-gamed my reporting because I wasn't sure what would happen when I got to Ethiopia. Indeed, I found witnesses to massacres during the early stages of the war in Cairo. It was pretty shocking to talk to those individuals. And then I carried on to Addis Ababa and met up with my guide or fixer. He prefers fixer in the West. We're a little concerned about using that term. It seems like it's a demotion. This guy, Mario, basically saved me, you know, got the trip together, introduced me to everyone. And when I met him in Addis Ababa, we hung out for a little bit and made sure that we got on. And then we flew to Lalabella, which is probably the holiest city after Axum in the entire country. It uh, had been occupied by TPLF soldiers for five months. There was a brief interlude of about 11 days. And so Lalabella, probably less than other Cities that the TPLF had occupied suffered very much. Individuals couldn't leave their homes. They had no food. The soldiers were taking the food. Women had been raped, livestock killed, and that made hunger a real issue. And of course, the electricity was out, and so women were forced to carry water just randomly. We happened across a training of Fano, which is kind of this storied militant group among the Amhara. they were in a field, this guy named Fenshal took us, and he introduced us to the trainers there. And it was hundreds of Lalabelins who were afraid for their lives. And I wanted to see what this Fano militia looked like from the inside, because they were accused of some of the more gruesome atrocities that have accompanied this incredibly deadly war. The challenge of reporting this in part is that, I could not get into Tigray, which is that northern province that the federal government unleashed all of their forces onto and worked with Eritrea, which is the northern country just above the the Ethiopian border. So it was the Ethiopian federal forces that poured into Tigray at the start of the war in November of 2020. It was the Fano they knew what was coming and wanted to reclaim these territories that they believed had traditionally belonged to them. And I undercount, you know, undercut a lot of that mythology in the piece. But it was also the Amhara special forces, the Amhara are a, a neighboring region that's just below Tigray. And all of these forces piled into Tigray, the whole state was under siege. And tigrans by the way, are 6% of the Ethiopian population. They don't have the power of the federal government, but they did have a lot of the resources and connections because they had ruled the country for 27 years before Abi came to power. The entire state was under siege. People slaughtered, driven from their homes. Refugees were sent into Sudan or other parts of Ethiopia or even into Eritrea, And I might add here that Eritrea is one of the most authoritarian countries in the world at the moment and has been for a long time. The majority of the violence and atrocities we can all assume have taken place in Tigray. Genocidal language was used up to the start of the war. The violent rhetoric among the federal government was over the top. And so this demonizing of the TPLF who again had ruled the country prior to Abiy's rise. They became a scapegoat for him. War is a great unifier. And I think he used the demonization of the TPLF as as a way to solidify his support. We believe that the majority of the atrocities took place in Tigray, but I couldn't get there. There's no good guy here. Like whatever took place at the hands of the federal government and their allies in Tigray Tigray then when they got the chance when they had the military upper hand in 2021 Tigray took out into other parts of Ethiopia the division politically is is astounding you know the the, the kind of polarization not only in the country among people there but among the diaspora and it's also reflected on social media um indeed Tigray and have sued meta Facebook for inciting violence, and and one's father was killed.
0: This is one of those horrific conflicts that the outside world, meaning Western opinion leaders, I guess, have paid very little attention to, but has killed, what, at least half a million people, 10 times that many, at least 10 times that many have been displaced. What is it all about? What is being fought over?
1: Power, basically. From the West, that seems a strange game, right? Like, what's the power of the Horn of Africa? You know, a lot of people in my personal life have said, why should we care about this? First of all, the number of dead is just atrocious. The number of, these are civilian dead that we're discussing. That's not even the hundreds of thousands of soldiers who were poured into this from either side. To go back and answer your question more directly, Doug, the cause of the war depends on who you talk to, but these are old alliances old frustrations that ultimately come down to who wants to be the great power in the horn of Africa. Eritrea, the country to the north, received its independence from Ethiopia in 1991, but a few years later fell into a gruesome war with Ethiopia. The war was around personal animosities that had developed over time. There's a tie to Eritrea changing its money, there's a personal relationship between the TPLF leader, Melissa Zanawi, and Isaiah Afwerki, the um, president of Eritrea. They had been allies in overthrowing the Derg and, and gaining Eritrea's independence, but they fell out quickly, and many people were killed in that border dispute. Isaias had a, a big beef with Zanawi. Zanawi lost, um, uh, died, and then his successor came to power, but was never able to keep peace in the country, disputes came up. And that's when Abi came to power. Abi then did what no one thought was possible and went to Eritrea and signed a peace accord after 30 years of bitter fight and disputes, and, and 30 years of Eritrea being increasingly isolated from the rest of the world. And many have speculated that that peace deal between the incoming administration, Abiy Ahmed, and this long-standing former guerrilla warfare specialist, Isaiah Safuerka, included this conversation of war because both hated the TPLF desperately. The TPLF, when pushed out of leadership, retreated to Tigray, which is a very small region. And that began to fester. The TPLF didn't like the demotion. And Abiy was using a lot of rhetoric against former leaders, TPLF leaders. And, you know, here was Eritrea that would love nothing more than a destabilized Ethiopia. The TPLF decided to host elections when the federal government delayed them. There were a number of different tensions that preceded the war. Most everyone agrees that the TPLF did the first fighting, went into federal military bases in Tigray and attacked the individuals there. Although there have been rumors that planes were being used, Ethiopian Airlines planes were being used to take soldiers into to Tigray. So even that is still murky. How did the war begin? Abiy is... He took to the violence. You know, he's a former communications for the military. He wanted to be a strong man. And the TPLF, of course, had all of this experience. They had overseen the the military for 27 years. Um, And they had a lot of military equipment. And no one was willing to back down. And I mean, the stakes are high. Western Tigray and Raya territories are enormous. Tigray, without that territory, which the Fano and Amhara special services now hold. Tigray has no outlet, you know, they're kind of locked between Eritrea and the rest of Ethiopia and they don't have an outlet through Sudan. So the stakes of this state without an outlet are pretty great. These animosities are old and in many cases fall along ethnic lines or ethnicity is used as a tool in the conflict and real lives are at stake. If the federal forces want to starve out and have starved out Tigrayan people from this territory. The Tigrayans have been fighting to live.
0: Tigrayans are, what, 6% of the population, yet they ruled the country for 30 years. How did they pull that off?
1: They did it with a coalition. So they formed the EPRDF, which was a coalition of the Oromo and uh, Tigrayans and um, Amhara and um, the southern states. And while they ruled the country under the auspices of this coalition, they pretty much ran the show. And certainly under Meles Zanawi, who was charismatic, shrewd, um, smart, did a lot to develop the country, had a lot of international contacts. Um, and I think at the beginning, certainly believed in, in, in moving the country toward democracy. But that dissipated quite quickly over time. And indeed, when Abiy came to power, he did so under the coalition, but the Tigrayans refused to participate and pulled out of it. In the most recent election that Abiy decided to form his own party, which is called, interestingly, the Prosperity Party. Um, So he's left the coalition behind. Tigray is not a part of it. And he's uh, using this party to espouse a lot of unity language, all of which seems hollow in the face of this hideous war and what's going on in Aroma.
0: I'm speaking with Ann Newman, author of an article in the February issue of Harper's on the war in Ethiopia. Who is this Abi guy? where did he come from?
1: One of his parents is Romo and one is Amhara. Um, he seemed like a great compromise candidate when um, the EPRDF was looking around for someone. He had served in the TPLF army um, as a communications when, when the TPLF ruled the country, and apparently has a lot of leftover resentments against the TPLF. But he's a good talker, he's got a PhD, he's young. I, I find him quite postured, but he's beloved in some parts of the country, particularly Amhara, who see finally they can get their just desserts after the TPLF is gone. And the diaspora have fallen in love with him. I think the West was very much in love with him at the very beginning. He got a Nobel Peace Prize, and that prize he has used as a helpful mask or cover as he's launched into this war. He did a lot of communications work in the military, and he's pretty savvy about his messaging and his use of internet and social media. The cutoff of Tigray in a gruesome way was brilliant. No news could get in or out. Even today, there are reports that flights into the capital of tigray Mekelle. It's limited who can enter or leave the state. So he has this media lockdown on the state. Still, we're you know we're several months now after peace agreements were signed, and Abi's just proven very effective at keeping that information in his own pocket.
0: A Fano spokesman said his group, Yamaha, are always under attack, a persecuted majority, uh, even though they rule the country for almost a century. Uh, how are they persecuted?
1: Yeah, it's um, it's these old stories of um, Amhara being prevented from what they deserve, from receiving what they reser- deserve. You know, like the the contested territory of Western Tigray. It's really hard to say who that territory belonged to in the beginning. There is no beginning. You know, this idea that the written Ethiopian history should tell us who predominantly occupied that territory is. Just a falsehood. It's hard to go back and and determine. The Amhara state, as we use that term today, didn't really exist until the the TPLF government set up individual federated states. And they did it along ethnic lines, which many say now is a terrible tragedy. These ethnicities then can squabble over whose territory is what and whose top dog. And I think that's why the Abiy administration is blaming the TPLF for setting up the situation for establishing this constitutional federated state government. And so once again, the TPLF is the scapegoat for whatever ails the current administration. But yeah, the Amhara, I don't know, maybe in some ways, and I don't know how I'd have to think more about this, but they are a persecuted majority, kind of like Christians here in the United States. Like the idea is that if the, if the country does not go along with our policies, we are stymied somehow in expressing them or, or living by them or legislating according to them. But Ethiopia just happens to have this long story of how the Amhara are the descendants of King Solomon um, through the Queen of Sheba, which is an incredibly compelling story, but, but has very little merit to it. Selassie came to power claiming that he was the descendant of King Solomon, Lion of Judah, And that still has sway in the country.
0: This kinds of ethnic divisions, borders drawn along ethnic lines, stoking ethnic uh, conflict, is a classic heritage of colonialism. Is there a colonial history here?
1: I wouldn't say, but there is an imperial history. Ethiopia was never colonized. Eritrea was. Um, Eritrea was colonized by the Italians. And part of American history runs through this part of the story as well. Italy colonized Eritrea and did it up. You know, they built incredible infrastructure and all of this. Um, The Americans took over Cagnu Station, which is in Eritrea. When the British ran the Italians off the continent close to the end of of the Second World War, there was a discussion of what should we do with Eritrea now, because apparently they weren't to be trusted to rule themselves. And Haile Selassie wanted that access to the Red Sea, to ports. Ethiopia is a landlocked country. Haile Selassie was very close to the American government and persuaded, you know, the Americans and and Selassie persuaded the British to give Eritrea basically to the Ethiopian government. And Selassie was an imperial dictator. He was the king. And the way that kingdoms worked in Ethiopia throughout whatever history we know was imperial governance through power and so any cohesion that we see, like the current borders of Ethiopia today come from men like the Second who established the capital, um, which had been nomadic up until then, but established the capital of Addis Ababa at the turn of the century and conquered all of these different ethnic groups and ruled over them in in imperial fashion. So when we talk about Colonialism on the continent, we quite often forget the colonialism that was taking place there among particular kingdoms before Europeans found it. So there is this history of ruling with an iron fist in that territory that I think is very much a part of Amhara success. You know, it's, it's part of the Amhara success story.
0: And does Washington have any interest in this conflict?
1: There are so many reasons. Um, we were talking about the, the enormous diaspora of Eritreans and Ethiopians in the country. We've mentioned this base that Americans were on and the role that um, the United States played in surveillance you know from Cagnew Station in, in Eritrea, where my father happened to have been in the 60s. The surveillance has, has what ties the United States to Ethiopia over a period of time. Nick Terse did a lot of reporting on the NSA's surveillance network that has been developed there since the start of the war on terror. Ethiopia is one of the largest recipients of aid from the United States. They're always in the top 10. And you know just this cultural, political, and military overlap is um, not small. But I would also say that just the compassion of what individual Ethiopians are experiencing. You know, when we think of Ethiopia, we think of Feed the World and and the 1980s. It was during the Derg and and this enormous famine where hunger was used as a weapon of war. Very much the same thing is taking place right now in Tigray, you know, where the federal government is preventing aid and has for two years, preventing aid from reaching Tigrayans um, who were in famine-like conditions at the start because of this famine that's spread across the Horn of Africa. So I would argue that on top of all of these other cultural and political and and military reasons that we should pay attention to the Horn of Africa, we should be compelled to fear for this kind of starvation, unspeakable violence, rape, torture, displacement that the war has brought, not just to Tigrayans, but Ethiopia now is taking a financial hit because of its obsession with the war. You and I can both talk about how racism and our lack of understanding of African history and, you know, even colonialism has prevented us from paying attention to this war. But it's a real tragedy to me that the Western media on the whole has not at least attempted to witness the atrocities there. And and so they've carried on.
0: Finally, um, is there any hope for a way out of this? You mentioned there was a ceasefire, brief one. Um, is there any way out?
1: Well, there was a ceasefire in, in 2021 when I was there in the spring, um, and then fighting resumed, um, and it was more brutal than the first phase. By fall of last year, the Tigrayan forces had been nearly decimated. They were out of resources, and it's still shocking to, to see how long they did carry on with the inability to muster forces. Small, small um, state. And in November, peace deals were signed in Nairobi and Pretoria. The Ethiopian government refused to allow the U.S. or any other Western power to negotiate the peace deal. And so the African Union did. Obasanjo and other individuals interceded and were able to get a peace deal signed. The Violence continued, sadly, after that peace deal was signed, and today there are still Eritrean soldiers, or at least reports of Eritrean soldiers, all across Tigray. And there are large questions that the peace deal did not deal with, like... case of Western Tigray. It's an enormous swath of of territory that's coveted because it's so fecund and would allow Tigray access to Sudan. But that's currently held by the Fano and Amhara Secret Services and federal forces. And we have no idea how that's going to shake out in any peace deal. As well, there's a lot of violence taking place in Aromia, issues with the Oromo population wanting independence. And so the country is just much less stable than it was before the start of the war. I'm hopeful that peace will hold, but there are so many factors that have an influence on that stability that just aren't resolved by the peace accords that have been signed. It's just that the war has been so devastating, it's hard not to be hopeful.
0: Well, and even if there were peace today, uh, there would still be a huge humanitarian catastrophe to contend with.
1: Undoubtedly, you know, hospitals with no medicine, women who have experienced mass rape and and sexual violence, um, who have no access to services, incredible famine, people that are completely displaced, even those who are able to get out of Tigray are afraid to go home. Um, Communication is still spotty. Internet and, and cell phone access are still limited, Banking is still limited. I mean, all of these services were shut down since the beginning of the war. So just finding out what has taken place there is going to be a years-long process. And there's just no way forward until international parties have access, open access, to bring aid and medical assistance into the country.
0: That was Anne Newman, author of a piece on the war in Ethiopia in the February issue of Harper's magazine. My name is Doug Henwood, and the program is Behind the News, back after musical break. Was some of Christoph Penderezzi's threnody for the victims of Hiroshima, with the composer conducting the Polish Radio National Symphony Orchestra. Now, two perspectives on an effort, instigated by Brazilian President Luis Inacio Lula da Silva, to create some kind of common currency in South America. Media in the global north did not distinguish itself from reporting this story. It was presented like some Latin version of the euro and mocked. Olivier Blanchard, the former chief economist of the IMF, commented on Twitter, This is insane. Also on Twitter, the egregious Larry Summers called it highly problematic, though I'm told that privately, with characteristic generosity, he likened it to two drunks trying to hold each other up. Instead of circulating patronizing caricatures, it's worth looking at what the idea is really all about, which is what my next two guests will do. First, an economist analysis from Andres Arauz, and then a more spirited political take from Brian Meir. Andres Arauz is an Ecuadorian politician and economist. He worked in the country's central bank from 2009 to 13, and then served in the administration of former Ecuadorian president Rafael Correa from 2015 to 17. He ran for president himself in 2021, winning the first round, but not by enough to avoid a runoff, which he then lost to a conservative candidate. He's now a research fellow at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Andres Arauz. The business press made a big thing out of uh, efforts... uh that uh, Lula launched uh, to create some kind of common currency arrangement with Argentina, perhaps spreading beyond that. They acted as if there's going to be some sort of uh, Latin equivalent to the euro. Is there anything
2: like that underway? No, this is not about a unique currency that replaces national currencies. This is about a common unit of account, a common uh, foreign exchange currency that can be used uh, by countries to settle international trade, without having to go or to recur to bank accounts in New York City or in banks in Miami. So it's about uh, creating a a regional instrument uh, for settling trade, basically. And hopefully with time, a mechanism that would allow a little bit of additional margin in in terms of uh, endogenous money available for the region's own development projects with the dollars that have been saved.
0: To what degree was this inspired by uh, the sanctions on Russia and uh, the reminder that uh, the U.S. uses the dollar not only as an economic weapon, but as a political one as well?
2: No, I would say that uh, there there is a long Latin American history of trying to find alternative solutions. I would say the inspiration comes more from the recent interest rate hikes uh, that threaten a new debt crisis uh, for the entire third world, and especially Latin America, which has been heavily indebted talk about Argentina, for example, but many other countries in the region as well. And, you know, we've had uh, the the UMLA, which is a Latin American monetary unit that's been discussed uh, uh, since the 70s and the 80s, the Andean Peso, which has been around the 80s as well, the Sucre, the System for Unitary Regional Compensation, which was a 21st century instrument as well that has been around in the region in the Central American payment system. So there have been several initiatives in uh, the region independent of the geopolitical juncture uh, related to Russia. But then again, of course, uh, there is prime uh, awareness that uh, you know the, the dollar is not just a currency, it's also a weapon, and it's been weaponized uh, heavily most recently.
0: And to what degree is this part of Lula's effort to uh, create more of a, an autonomous Latin zone uh, outside of U.S. Uh, geopolitical influence?
2: Yeah, that is absolutely part of the intention. It is to have a a, a more sovereign Latin America, a more sovereign South America that can, uh, you know, have gains in terms of uh, economic policy, political economy, but also issues such as you know the information. The current system is uh, heavily surveilled. It works in a sort of monopoly way with a monopoly messaging system such as SWIFT. It ultimately ends up being settled in U.S. Uh, accounts. So the the information of the entire economies of these countries are being centralized in U.S. servers and with co- U.S. government access. So I think there's uh, also another dimension to building a sovereign financial payments network within the region.
0: When you look at uh, Argentina and Brazil, compare the two, they look like a bit of an odd couple. Uh, Argentina has, uh, what, a 100% inflation rate or so, long history of default, much smaller economy, international debtor. Brazil uh, is a creditor country, big foreign exchange reserves. Is there something in it for Brazil that might not be there for Argentina? uh, What about the relative power balance between the two?
2: Well, absolutely. There's a, there's the interest of Brazil of having a stable neighbor, of having a market to export its uh, industrial goods. It's uh, a larger than recently very expanding uh, services sector as well, and, and they want a market for, for the industry as well. But uh, this is not just about, you know, self-interest. This is, in fact, about solidarity, and it's about building a a common project in the region. And I think uh, Lula and Brazil are perfectly clear about this, and they are going to pursue solidarity in international Latin American solidarity as part of their uh, foreign policy.
0: Are there any efforts underway uh, or likely to be underway to uh, fashion
2: something of a Latin common market or deepen it? It's not like it doesn't exist already. I mean, there there is a trade is liberalized in the region uh, almost completely, you know, with successive waves of, of FTAs, free trade agreements uh, between and among Latin American countries. It's just a sort of a complex spaghetti bowl of, of these trade agreements. What we need is actually more proactive policy where it's not just about free trade, but about infrastructure about having for example uh, a regional uh, rail network to connect the major cities and the major industrial centers uh, of our region what we need is uh, you know a, a, an electric system that works together a series of pipelines and, and gas lines and so on that can uh, create a sovereign energy policy for our region that doesn't depend on imports from the united states you know most countries in the region end up importing uh, gasoline from the united states uh, that's so unreasonable given our energy potential and so on so what we need is actual proactive uh, policies to to make the common market actually work in terms of the connectivity in terms of you know people being able to to move within the region to work within the region and of course uh, a common also education policy that allows people to uh, study, for example, one year or half a year abroad within the region without major uh, friction. So that's the kind of issues that that still need to go forward.
0: It sounds like you're talking more about investment, not just trade.
2: Yes, I mean we we need uh, that which makes trade possible. You know, literally, we need to build roads, rails, canals, tunnels, uh, and, and so on, and to actually make these connections possible. In the trade part, there's a uh, the opportunity to or coordinate actually fiscal policy for trade. And I'd like to explain this a, a little bit. You know, for example, each country has its own procurement policy, and, and they end up buying the same from the, usually the same supplier, usually somewhere in in, in Asia or in Europe. Uh, when if we could uh, aggregate the demand of all of the countries in the region and project that demand for the next four or five years and decide where we want to focus that uh, regional aggregate uh, procurement in, we can actually use that as a way of coordinating productive policy where we can specialize within the region and also uh, make that or convert that into a... uh, science and technology investment program where, you know, without adding extra dollars to the budget, you can have a huge impact in terms of having uh, companies and businesses invest in their own productive capacities within the region.
0: Are there any efforts along these lines underway, or are these just uh, desirable things to talk about?
2: There are some efforts underway, for example, in the health sector. Uh, UNASUR, when it still existed, uh, had a common procurement policy for some medicines, and that would be linked to the domestic productive capacities. So that's uh, underway. Uh, There is also a a program uh, for the infrastructure investment within the region. There's an entire council that used to exist called the South American Infrastructure and Planning Board that uh, was within UNASUR. All the countries participated in it, and it has the the plans for the roads, bridges, uh, canals, uh, rails, and so on. That would be built in, in the next decade. So that has to be brought up again, put on the agenda, and get the money flowing to make integration a concrete, tangible thing for the peoples of the South American region.
0: That was Andre Saraz, a research fellow at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. And now for another view on the topic, here's Brian Meir. He's the co-editor of Brazil Wire and a correspondent for Telesor English. This is not the first we've heard of this, but there's been talk of trying to create a common currency area in um, South America, uh, and uh, Lula uh, seems to be leading the way. Leaving aside the economics of this for the moment, is there some kind of foreign policy aspect to it that uh, Lula is trying to assert himself on?
3: Well, you know, Lula has always been in favor of multipolar relations and believes that the countries in Latin America can negotiate with the big imperialist Northern powers better if they're united. That's why he was so enthusiastic about Mercosur and BRICS and all of these other kinds of, BRICS is not Latin America, right? But all of these other kinds of like regional trade blocks. But it's important to point out here that what he's talking about with Argentina is not exactly a new currency like the Euro. He's talking about a digital currency that could be used specifically for transactions between you know the national and local governments of Brazil and Argentina and also business interests that would avoid them having to do these transactions in dollars, which is what they're doing right now. And the problem is that in every transaction made in dollars, both parties lose on exchange fees. And so it would be something that would boost trade between the two countries. And Argentina is already Brazil's third largest trade partner after China and the U.S. At this point, they're talking about that, but it seems like some people up in the U.S., Forbes magazine and things like that, are acting like he was talking about a euro for Latin America or something.
0: Yeah, I think that's the way the economists interpreted it, and uh, they, uh, in their usual style, made fun of it. Um, (laughs) I hate that magazine. Now, of course, these are very different countries, though. Argentina has a long history of default, a very high inflation rate. Um, It's considerably smaller than Brazil. Brazil is a much bigger, more complex economy. You almost wonder if uh, Brazil saw some advantage in this that uh, might come at the expense of others. Is
3: it a more egalitarian concept than that? Trade relations between the two countries are pretty equal. I mean, I think in 2021... Brazil exported around $15 billion worth of goods to Argentina and imported around $13 billion from Argentina. So it's not this, that imbalanced, you know. On top of that, Fernandes, the Kirchners, the Workers' Party have long relationships. I view this as a positive, not a predatory sub-imperialist move on behalf of Brazil, but like as a positive attempt to um, strengthen the economies in Latin America, and hopefully not just Brazil and Argentina, but other countries as well. The idea would be there would be this kind of digital currency, and uh, both countries would jointly create a kind of small central bank-like institution that would regulate it. There would be no conversion fee between the peso, the Argentinian peso, and the real, so that um, you know rates would be adjusted accordingly to the the currency values in each country. And um, I can't see how it would be thought of it or how it could be twisted around into something predatory at this point because it's, it would be optional. In any case, this would be a project over the very long term, right? It's not something that could happen uh, the day after tomorrow. The way that some people in the uh, Anglo financial media panicked about this, it was as if they were saying they were about to create a kind of South American euro you know, and what they really said was, we're going to set up a committee to spend a couple of years doing a feasibility study about this.
0: What, if any, were the effects of the US-led sanctions on Russia, which uh, underscored the power of the dollar, not just economically, but also politically? Um, did this uh, increase the
3: Brazilian eagerness, or at least Lula's eagerness, to reduce uh, the centrality of the dollar? In general terms, Lula has supported for a long time the idea of a BRICS currency, and he's definitely in favor of reducing dependency on the dollar. I interviewed him together with the late, great Michael Brooks and Daniel Hunt, my other co-editor from BrazilWire, in 2020, I guess it was, right after Lula got out of jail. And uh, he said that he thinks the moment that the Obama administration turned on him, because there was a time when you know Obama was just praising Lula left and right, but then there was this sudden shift. He, thought, he thinks the first moment when he turned on him was when he started talking about creating a BRICS currency. Like he said something about a BRICS currency to the press. And he said that night Obama called him personally. We're just like, what are you talking about, Lula? <laughs> what are you talking about? What are, you, are you serious? You can't be serious about this. And that was like, from that moment, the relations between Brazil and uh, the U.S. soured. So I think it's really important... Right now at the state we're in, in Brazil with a, you know, a coup attempt on January 8th with sectors of the American far right rabidly propping up Bolsonaro. I mean, he's going to be doing this speaking engagement to some big far right institute now. You know, his sons are regular on Fox News and Tucker Carlson and all that stuff. At this moment, it's important that, the, that we don't let U.S. Uh, media scare people over this turn it into like this panic against the Lula administration. Because for by a bizarre convergence in history, right now, bizarrely, the Biden administration seems to be supporting the Lula government. I think it's out of its own political self-interest, opportunism, obviously. They can't, they can't support a side that's backed by Bannon and the Mercers and Trump and all of that stuff, the international far right. So they, they're kind of stuck supporting Lula, but the international financial sector doesn't like the Workers' Party. And uh, and so you see the media is already starting with these kinds of attacks and blowing things out of proportion to damage the credibility and to delegitimize his mandate, which even if it doesn't succeed in forcing the Workers' Party out, it's going to put them in a situation where they have to make more concessions to international finance. It's a lot of pressure. And so this is just, a. it's the same thing like, with uh, Glenn Greenwald and uh, spilling into the New York Times calling the government authoritarian right now because they're trying to arrest people who tried to implement a neo-fascist military coup committing treason. They're removing some of these people's Twitter accounts temporarily, it's like this huge authoritarian thing. So I'm, I'm worried that this is just gonna be used as another tool to like delegitimize uh, the Workers' Party government. Glenn Greenwald gets very upset when uh, the civil liberties of his right-wing friends get stepped on, it seems. He has to learn about the laws in the country he lives in because Brazil doesn't have the U.S. Constitution. It has a different vision of human rights. They're harmonious. No right can be used to limit someone else's rights or to trod on someone else's rights. So freedom of speech doesn't protect... Um, trying to attack the credibility of an election without any evidence or anything like that. That's not protected under free speech in Brazil. Aside from the currency, um, Lula's trip,
0: uh, as Reuters put it, Lula's trip to neighboring Argentina marks the return of Brazil to the community of Latin American and Caribbean states, CILAC, which Brazil left in 2019 under order from Bolsonaro, who didn't like the fact that uh, Cuba and Venezuela remember. So this is part
3: of a larger move on foreign policy from Lula, right? Of course, yeah. It's trying to regain all of the sovereignty that was lost, starting with the 2016 coup d'etat against Dilma Rousseff and the subsequent privatization and auctioning off of a lot of Brazil's oil reserves, privatization of different sectors of the state industries, turning the public largest national gas station chain over to BlackRock and things like that, and, and just being completely subservient to the US government. Uh, Bolsonaro was the most subservient president in modern Brazilian history to US interests. And so it's really important right now to, first of all, to regain Brazil's status in the world as it was the sixth largest economy in the world during the workers party years. Now it's dropped to 13th because deep austerity is not the way out of a minor recession you know, in anywhere in the world. And so the, the recession was greatly exacerbated by this kind of Washington consensus style austerity policies that really hurt Brazil in the pandemic because they, they gutted the public health system in the two years leading up to the pandemic. But also just like to let people know that Brazil is back in the world. Lula met with as many representatives of foreign countries in the first month as Jair Bolsonaro did his first two years in office. He's already met with delegations from 14 countries. Under Bolsonaro, Brazil came this kind of like complete US satellite state. Uh, and now he's just trying to like reassert its place in the world. And by doing that, reopening diplomatic relations with Venezuela, the Venezuelan embassy is reopened in Brazil, in Brasilia, increasing trade relations with other Latin American countries and geopolitical relations as well. And uh, very importantly taking a neutral stance in the war between russia and ukraine in which the other day he said he he wants to help brazil wants to help bring peace and he believes that china should be involved in this peace process as well it's time to stop pointing fingers and say who started it, whose fault is it and look for how uh, a solution can be brought about as quickly as possible that's not going to win many friends in washington
0: No. (laughs) Now, uh, Bolsonaro's people are still all over the government, right? Congress, judiciary, local officials, governors.
3: Lula's got a lot of challenges ahead of him, doesn't he? Well, he's overcome most of the political challenges, right? All 27 governors are on his side now, you know, except for the guy from Brasilia, who they got rid of for 90 days because of his involvement in the coup. Bolsonaro's biggest gubernatorial ally, the governor from Goiás, uh, last week, he said, look, I just have to take my hat off to the Lula administration. Um, they want to move forwards. You know, uh, Basically, he met with all 27 governors and he said, I want each one of you to give me a dream project that you think you can implement in four years. And I'm not worried about what political party you're in. Let's just make it happen. He controls the purse strings to the governors. And most of the right wing politicians in Brazil are just opportunists. He's, I mean, he, he passed a constitutional amendment before he even took office, uh, bypassing the neoliberal social spending caps that were implemented. They were inserted into the Brazilian constitution in 2016 after the coup uh, so that he could increase welfare payments. That was before he even took office. And there's elections going on this week for president, you know, speaker of the House and Senate. It's called president in Brazil. And it looks like despite PT, Workers' Party, only being about 18 to 20% of Congress, his coalition is going to take the speakership in Congress. And it's a very close race for, to see who the, the, Senate, the speaker will be in Senate. Politically, he's in pretty good shape. Now, outside of politics, outside of the rule of law, there's still a bunch of lunatics fueled by the international fascist far right who are still talking about trying to throw a coup d'etat, which is why it's important that they arrest people right now despite what certain people say about freedom of speech or whatever a, a basketball star no a volleyball star in Brazil volleyball is a really big sport down here one of the biggest volleyball stars tweeted that that people should assassinate lula yesterday you know and so he got his account taken down and he's um he's apologized but he was fired from his team and he might be arrested now that i don't think if someone publicly called for assassinating the president of the us they would get by without They're going to jail or something. they would be in a lot of trouble. Or sued. From everything I've ever heard about Lula, he seems like an extremely skilled politician. The guy really seems to know how to um, get people to do what he wants them to do. He's one of the most brilliant politicians. And it comes from his years as a union leader during a military dictatorship while they were torturing and killing union leaders. So he had to walk a fine line. He, was, he himself was arrested. His brother was brutally tortured. His brother was another union leader. And uh, what he did during the dictatorship is he proved that the dictatorship had been lying about the economic figures, lying about the inflation rate to keep everyone's wages down. Because in those days, everyone got an inflation adjustment every year. And he proved that everyone in the country had been ripped off of 34.1% of their pay and turned this into like, not just his union campaign, but a national campaign. And that's what helped bring down the dictatorship. You know, so he was a great negotiator before he even got into politics. And you can see it now. I mean, the the way he flipped the, the governors immediately, Dilma Rousseff or another leader on the left or something wouldn't have been able to do that nearly as quickly just because he's got these skills. You know, he's used to negotiating with fascist military official company owners, different leftist fragmented sectors, Trotskyists within the labor movement, and trying to get everyone to agree to things.
0: The business press and financial people in the U.S. uh, and and the Northern Hemisphere generally mocked the idea of this currency, but we should take it seriously as part of a longer-term strategy to uh, develop more independence from Washington's control across Latin America. So, I mean, it really is a threat to U.S. power in some sense in the long term.
3: Yeah, but I think what this business press has to realize is that U.S. is losing power anyway. Why are we using a dollar for international transactions in Brazil when we do three times more trade with China than we do with the United States? The U.S. and the EU together do less trade with Brazil than China. The U.S. in Latin America is beginning to look like the U.K. with its former colonies, you know, in the 1960s and 70s when it was pretending that it was still this big empire. I think the business press has to get on board with the idea that the U.S. Uh, globally is in, a, in decline right now and that it's a multipolar world. I don't think the U.S. is going to go down graciously, though. No, no, sadly.
0: I was Brian Muir, co-editor of Brazil Wire. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, speaking of the faded British Empire, the last of Beethoven's variations on "Rule, Britannia, performed by Alfred Brendel. Till next week, bye.